Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies, part of the New Books Network. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with Lisa Levenstein, Director of the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Program and an Associate Professor of History at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Her current book, They Didn't See Us Coming, The Hidden History of Feminism in the 90s, published by Basic Books, is the topic of this show. Levenstein shows us how American feminists joined a global women's movement for women's rights as human rights. At home, feminists engage in such issues as race, economics, labor, and the environment as important concerns that went beyond the interest of white middle-class women. Feminist activists deployed new communication technologies, built networks around the world, and found significant sources and methods for fundraising. A professionalized feminist activist emerged. A key event was the 1995 Fourth World Conference on Women, sponsored by the United Nations in Beijing, China, that ultimately led to the Women's March on Washington in 2016. During the 1990s, the movement became more diverse, intersectional, globally interconnected, and professionalized. Here is my conversation with Lisa Levenstein. Now, let me introduce you to the author, Lisa Levenstein. Hello, Lisa. Hi, how are you doing? Welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Uh, You've written a book about feminism in the 1990s, but first, before we get into the book, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write They Didn't See Us Coming. Oh, well, first, thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to delve kind of more deeply into some of the ideas and my process in writing this book. So I'm a historian by training, a feminist historian, a women's historian, and I have spent my whole career really trying to understand social movements beyond famous leaders and celebrated instances of mass protest. I really looked at a multiplicity of ways that people organize collectively to create change. And often my work has centered people who don't fit our stereotypes of who is an activist. And I've also been particularly interested in the ways that people promote, foster social change that don't involve just kind of marching on the streets, our typical image of a social movement. So it turned out that this kind of approach, that looking at people and forms of activism not typically considered part of social movements, this approach really proved very fruitful when I turned my attention to the feminist movement of the 1990s. In, in 1992, Time magazine ran an article, actually it was a cover story, and that cover asked, is feminism dead? And then the article inside basically concluded, yes. There's a little bit of attention in the 90s to what people called the third wave, the kind of they, and it was described as a small number of youth who are mostly interested in like questions of their own identities. 
But in general, Time Magazine's analysis was what carried the day. The idea was there really wasn't much of a feminist movement. It had its heyday in the 1960s and 1970s. Some thought maybe it had splintered into factions. Some thought it was no longer necessary or it had just died out completely. Now, I'd always been really suspicious of this narrative, having lived through the 90s myself. And when I started going to the archives and mostly also conducting oral history interviews, looking at activism that wasn't covered by the mainstream press, I found that um, not only was the narrative that was being promoted really wrong, but that this was an absolutely pivotal decade for the feminist movement. Now, I wanted to ask you before we even get started, how are you defining feminism? I know that's a trick question, but mm -hmm. uh, I think it's important for people to understand the scope of what you're addressing and yeah. what you mean by feminism. Well, almost everybody, first of all, there's no one, one of the things that any historian who looks at feminism or really any social movement could tell you is that there's no one definition of feminism um, that has been kind of universally applied and understood and adopted by people. What feminism is, has always and will continue to be a subject of intense debate, <laughs> contestation, and um, that's inherent to all social movements, really. What are the goals? What are the priorities? What should we do first? What kinds of strategies should we use? What is feminism? That question is part of what activism is about, figuring out answers to that question, debating it, think, debating it, and thinking about it. And so, in, and that was true in the 90s. It was true in the 1890s, right? It's been true throughout history that people have different visions of feminism, their own visions of feminism that they bring to their activism, and they engage with each other about those ideas. Now, in the, in the 90s, um, what, and one of the questions that women's historians have really engaged is to what degree do we call people feminists who might not have themselves even used that label? So we look at their work and we can see that there's, they were fighting to promote um, the empowerment of all people, including women, right? And that might, we might label that as feminist, but maybe they didn't adopt the term. So should we as historians use it? That's a question that many people looking at the 50s, for example, often engage. In my study, most, almost all of the people who are in the book did identify as feminists. That doesn't mean they have the same vision of what the priorities of the movement should be, but they consider themselves feminists. There were some who were part of other social movements, like in the environmental justice movement or the labor movement, who might have been described themselves more as an environmental activist or a labor activist, but who I have put in the book because their vision was really so profoundly feminist in my view, insofar as it really, the um, empowerment of women and all people were part of their vision. But in general, most of the people who I, I looked at had took that name on and, um, were really kind of self-conscious about it. They believed that the feminism had been misunderstood by the media, many of them. And they were they thought it was important to claim the identity and show that it could be done in many different ways. 
Well, what's really interesting about what you're talking about, the definitions of feminism, this is really important because it's important in my work too in defining what that means, that there are many positions that are like some would call pro-woman positions that are not necessarily feminist positions. Mm -hmm. And so there's this line between what is pro-woman and what is feminism. And it's just interesting because it always seems to be shifting and sometimes it's too expansive for me, for my taste. You know, it's too broad. You know, it's like everybody who, you know, wants their daughter to go to college is a feminist. Which you, you know, Some people would call that a pro-woman, you know, position, but it may not necessarily be a feminist position. So, mm-hmm. but I, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. So one of the things that you start off in your book uh, talking about is the Women's March, Women's March on Washington in 2016 is a pivotal event. Uh, that's that really surprised many people. It surprised me, you know, that this came, I mean, that's how big that event was. Can you talk a little bit about that? Why that was such a big surprise for so many people? Yeah. And so just to, sorry, just to come back to the feminist question, and then I want to go on to the Women's March issue, because I think they're actually really connected. One of the things I found in the 1990s was that increasingly, many activists who were part of the movement. And by that, I mean that they're really, they're connected to other people in some way or another. And they don't, they don't see themselves just kind of doing this work alone, but they see themselves as part of a broader effort for social justice. Almost all of them understood feminism to be something that was not just about gender, right? That was, it's kind of what we would today call an intersectional vision of feminism that ha- that said, if we're just looking at women, what we often mean is white women, and that fighting for women's equality won't bring us much because it will, that's really only about bringing white women up with white men. And that's a very small percentage of the population. And so they had a much broader vision of feminism in terms of, and, and an understanding of gender as just one of many identities that um, people had and an understanding of fighting oppression that was really multifaceted and fighting oppression on multiple fronts. And we really saw that vision enacted in the Women's March in 2017 when the platform for that march is quite a do- an astounding document in my mind. It is a very intersectional platform that doesn't just foreground gender oppression, but foregrounds all forms of oppression. If you look there, there's a lot there about that kind of foreshadows the Black Lives Matter, you know, talks a lot about police, talks about police brutality, mass incarceration, women with disabilities, um, you know, immigration, care work, labor. There's a lot that it's a very multifaceted platform with a very broad vision. And the people who were at the forefront of that march, the leaders, were a very diverse group of people. And if you even looked at the signs that people carried for the march, they highlighted all kinds of issues. And people looked at the march and they said, wow, where did all this come from? You know, must have been people just got really angry about Trump seem to be one of the narratives. Trump's really set these women off because he's so sexist and he's made the, you know, and he's a has, you know, rapists, perhaps, all of these issues. But in fact, I think that marches like that, large-scale demonstrations, they don't just arise out of nowhere, right? They come about because of, in this case, decades of activism that really 
got a lot of their shape starting in the 90s, where people learned about injustice and all kinds of injustice in various forms, learned analyses that made them see it in places they might not have seen it before and have a kind of language and understanding of it that enabled them to speak up about it and take action. And so big marches, demonstrations don't arise out of nowhere. They build on decades of activism that's happened before, often unknown, unseen, unmarked, unreported activism. And we certainly right. saw yeah. that with the Women's March. Well, yeah. So, yeah, your, your book sort of points to all the things that were going on that nobody saw. And then all of a sudden we see this march and we're like, oh, my gosh, where did it all come from? And mm-hmm. you're right about that. So we'll go back to the 1990s. Uh, one of the pivotal events that you uh, highlight is the 1995 Fourth Conference on Women in Beijing that was sponsored by the Un- United Nations. Can you talk about why that was a critical event? Uh and there it was sort of a it was a point where American feminists had to come to terms with many things about what was going on in the world and with women. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. I this is a big surprise to me. I had lived through, you know, I lived I was alive in 1995 and all I ever learned about the conference was that then first lady Hillary Clinton had made an appearance there and she gave a very famous speech in which she proclaimed that women's rights are human rights. And I, that media focused on that speech and that's really all I knew about the conference. And then one day I discovered an article that listed about 25 organizations, many of them women of color, feminist organizations from the US that had, that were among the hundreds maybe of organizations from the US that had attended, um, that had sent people to this conference. And then I started doing a little bit more digging and I learned that there were over 40,000 people at the conference, that there was a kind of governmental part where the, that speech that Hillary Clinton gave was televised, but that she also went and spoke to what is known as the NGO Forum, which is where activists from around the world, over 30,000 of them had gathered to have basically... 10 days of consciousness raising and panels and plenaries and speakers and marches and cultural demonstrations in which they were analyzing what had happened in the past decade for women around the world and strategizing about their goals for the future, sharing strategies, sharing ideas. And U.S. women, over 8,000 of them and over 1,000 of those women were women of color, went to this conference in very large numbers. And one of the most profound experiences they had there was that they were humbled. Many of them had thought, you know, that U.S. women and people, women in the U.S., you know, kind of were more advanced in some ways than in other countries where that they, and and what they learned at that conference was that many women in the what was then what people called the global south parts of latin america africa and asia had been grappling with a fundamental shift in the world which we today and starting then they also were calling it this globalization and the kind of rise and spread of global capitalism and women in different parts of the country had been talking about the effects of the world bank and the policies of the imf and 
the way that neoliberalism was spreading and had come up with like really um, interesting feminist analyses of these larger economic processes that were transforming our world. And the U.S. women had not been thinking in these global terms, or many of them had not been thinking about the, in these global terms. Those that had, had learned a lot from these forward-looking thinkers in the global South, and were still kind of continuing to build on that. And so they learned a tremendous amount at this conference that they then took home with them and started to see how it would, imp uh, how they could apply it to the work they were doing at home. Well, what's inter what was interesting about that is they they became more American feminists, became much aware of the the intersection of different issues between the United States policies, how it affect was affecting women in other countries. And I wanted to ask you about what some of the some of the difference with the issues, the focus of women in international international community versus American feminism. And one of the things that you talk about is was the example of uh, reproductive rights, that for American feminism, reproductive rights really came down to access and, uh, to abortion. And for women in poor countries, reproductive rights might mean, you know, being able to have a child, not be feared of being sterilized, and being able to mother that child, and be able to feed your child. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of those issues like that that are kind of a little the way they looked at economics? Absolutely. And Absolutely. And well, that actually, that broader vision of reproductive rights that would include not only the right not to have children, but the right to kind of like a positive right to have children, a right, right to have access to um, the food, shelter, education that you need to raise a healthy child, as well as the right to um, limit your pregnancies through birth control or terminate a pregnancy through abortion. That kind of broader vision of what reproductive rights would entail is one that women of color in the U.S. had long held and had been teaching to white women for many decades by the time the 90s um, came about. But many white women, it took them quite a while to learn. <laughs> they, you know, and still today we see this. And, and but and what one of the interesting things that happened as well in these international arenas was that many women of that the Ford Foundation funded large numbers, well significant numbers of women of color, and I'm talking about Native American women, Latina, African American, and Asian American reproductive rights advocates to attend these conferences, and they engaged with people from other parts of the world, and many of them began to see that a human rights framework was helpful for them in thinking about reproductive rights issues. And through these international engagements and through their own thinking and history, they came up with what today we is known as, and um, they, uh, they coined the term in the 90s, the framework of reproductive justice to kind of encapsulate this broader vision of reproductive politics and also the idea that, there's a, that, th that these issues should be considered human rights. So women of color were very influenced by their engagement on the international scene in their development of this framework that today okay. we see kind of spoken about um, often in the reproductive rights and justice movement. So is, um, uh, is as of domestic or American women of color, labor women, poor women, uh, or lower class women, women of different 
kinds of backgrounds are becoming engaged with feminism in the 1990s with their own particular issues, okay, their economic issues or racism or whatever it is, uh, what we see is we see, of course, a, a, a feminism that is intersectional. It's no longer about white middle-class women and uh, no longer about the National Organization for Women. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's all these little organizations are springing up all over the place. Absolutely. Kind of challenging, I think, in one some way, the dominance of the, of now and and some of those uh, larger, more established feminist organizations that have been carrying the banner for so long. Yeah, that's exactly. That's a great way to think about it. Um, one of women of color had been insisting for many years that larger organizations like now do more than just kind of lip service right? That they be part of the boards of these organizations, that they be part of the leadership teams, that if really that if these organizations really did care about all women in the way they kind of proclaimed they did, then that really needed to be seen in a shifting of power within the organization, in a shifting of the leadership of the organization, and a shifting in the priorities, which would also result in a shifting of the priorities of these organizations, right? So you might say, you might be now and say that you care about X, you know, racial equality, but you don't have any women in your leader, any women of color in your leadership team, and your list of um, campaigns that you're doing have very little to do with race. So, right. So you can write it on a website or something, but actually doing that work, you might not be enacting it. So what happened, though, in the 90s is that although women of color continued to push these organizations to become more um, intersectional in their practices, as well as just maybe their talk, they women of color increasingly um, formed their own powerful organizations Um and they, I mean, not that this had never happened before, but I think what happened is that they began to really see it as a strategy to create their own power base, basis of power that then could be used to, that then were, in, that were doing the work they believed in. And what happened is those organizations, for whatever reasons, in the 1990s, really started to influence the movement writ large. And some of the white organizations, really, the, the women of color organizations got so um, powerful in a certain sense. Um, that the white organizations were forced to change, were forced to, they recognized that they couldn't go this alone. They needed the support of all kinds of women to get what they wanted accomplished. Yeah, it was uh, leverage. Mm -hmm. The other thing too is uh, the complaint that came up a lot was that uh, white controlled or dominated organizations, feminist organizations would uh, talk about including black women, but they always did it sort of as a afterthought. Oh yes, let's call one of the women of color to come on and work on this project after the planning was already done. Exactly. Right. Instead of, you know, instead of at the beginning of the process. Right. After we already just, after the white women decided what the project would be and what the problem was they wanted to address, then, Oh, look, we're all white. We need to have some, you know, other people at the table, but it was too late. They had already decided the scope of the problem, what the problem was that they wanted to work on. And then they, you know, it's like inviting people in later and to join up rather than actually valuing their opinion enough 
to see what they thought the priorities were and what the most important issues were that needed to be worked on at that moment. You know, it really struck me about uh, the white uh, women's organizations, dominated organizations, was how masculinist and hierarchical they were in their structures. In in that they they operated very much like men operate at the top, make decisions, execute, you know, tell yeah. the people underneath you what to do, and not collaborative, not consensus, and which seems to be a, they had an an anti I would say anti or a feminist anti feminist process of working even though they held feminist ideas. That is so interesting. <laughs> I had several people um, who I interviewed made that exact point about, it's one thing, and I think this is an issue, well, kind of widespread issue actually in social justice because um, increasingly social justice organizations are organizations that have budgets. They are organizations this is one of the shifts I outlined in the 1990s, right? People are getting grants for things. People are getting paid to do this kind of work. So certain people, and maybe certain people are getting paid more than others. Certain people, you know, have leadership positions that are bringing in certain kinds of paychecks. And there's a real, and how all of that gets negotiated is there's often some slippage between the politics a social justice organization is promoting, you know, what's the kind of vision they have of changing the world to be a more equal place and the way that the office is run, right? right? And getting those two things in sync is not at all straightforward. It's not a straightforward process at all. Well, and we're going to talk about many <laughs> kinds of social change organizations really struggle with how to be acting your politics, not just like in the world at large, but at home in a certain way. We're going to talk about that in a little bit some more because I'm very interested in, in that about, you know, uh, how we structure these activist organizations that actually replicate the structures that they're trying to change. Anyway, so on to another point here is one of the things that you talk about that I thought was one of the most interesting chapters in the book was about the explosion of deploying tech, new technologies for communications among women all over around the world through listservs, emails, you know, the, the uh, internet's coming, you know, it's just, it's just in infancy, but there were groups of women technologists who in Beijing we're ready to begin to use these technologies for communications. And I think that that also helped the development of, of, you know, global connections with feminism. Can you talk about that? That was just a very interesting chapter. Oh, thank you. I mean, I, I was really, I found that fascinating too, I have to say, because one of the things that people were talking about in the early nineties, which was kind of the dawn of the digital revolution was, they're talking about a gender gap in access to technology, use of technology. The idea being that women were going to kind of get left behind with the digital revolution and they weren't going to be able to seize new technology to the degree that men did. Now, we still see a huge gender gap, of course, in like Silicon Valley and the power that be, right? You know, but 
in terms of actually using the technology, feminism was one was really at the forefront of all social movements in seeing from the very beginning, really from the get-go, seeing the power of the internet, the power that new technology was going to have to help their movement and to affect change. And so they were early, early um, adopters. And one of the things that really did help accelerate the process was the Beijing conference. There was a nonprofit organization that made it their point to help use, leverage the Beijing conference to get people online. And so women, a lot of women will say that the first time they went online was before the conference to kind of help them find out information about it, get them hooked up. There were listeners that started to develop that were sharing information about the, because it wasn't being reported in the media. So again, we see even the roots of people using technology. Um, like today you think about Twitter, you know, like news now originates on Twitter that then gets reported in the newspaper. A similar thing is happening then. It's just in a different kind of form. No one's writing or reporting on the Beijing conference, on the plans for it, on what people are going to do. So they create their own alternative communities and sources of news on the internet. And people get hooked up to the internet precisely to find out information about the conference. Then they go to the conference and there was a technology center with over like 50 computers there. And it was set up and staffed by an all women of team of women from throughout the world speaking like 20 different languages. And they were they, they really saw that as a self conscious thing, they wanted to model for other people that women were absolutely capable of using this technology, not just using it, but fixing it when you know, when everything went down, they were the ones getting out there to fix it, and to teach each other how to use it. People found it incredibly useful, not just politically, but at the Beijing conference, you know, it happened in um, end of August and people, you know, a lot of people's kids were going back to school. They had, they missed a lot when they went to the conference and they used the internet. Also, they found out how wonderful it could be to help you stay in touch with people, send an email back to your family and get something back right away when you were in China for two weeks. It was a really important moment for many people in getting accustomed to using the internet. And then they came home and they built on that. They built on the networks they had started to form at the conference and they built on the, on the skills they had started to use. And so you started to see a real shift in the way communication happened. Um, fax machines had been really big um, prior to that. And then you have the real shift to email. Right. And I saw some fascinating things trying to explain in writing what a PDF was. You know, if you don't if you don't grow up with a PDF, you don't know what a PDF is. And they're trying to explain to each other what a PDF is and how you can use one and what how you can make one. You know, these things we take for granted today were really new then and they proved to be extremely helpful in furthering the goals of the movement. I think that that whole that chapter could be a book all by itself. Oh, because- absolutely. Because I mean, we remember, if you if you lived through the 90s, you remember how clunky that technology was. You had to dial up services and things would go down and there was always a lot of bugs and it, it was clunky. And then there was also the issue of that a lot of women in, in you know, in the global south uh, didn't have immediate access to a computer. 
you know, they didn't have one in their home. You know, they still didn't have personal computers. They had to go to some somewhere, a center, a computing center to send an email. Absolutely. And you saw a lot of awareness among the people who were working internationally about these issues of access. They were constantly discussing them. They were constantly trying to figure out strategies to make sure that the conversations that were being had were inclusive. And some of that meant people who had more easy access to the internet kind of restraining themselves and not posting all the time or sending off emails all the time, but giving they're giving it a pause to allow people who weren't going to be able to log on every day to weigh into a conversation, recognizing that these issues were, that there were inequalities. They recognized that there were inequalities, but they believed that they couldn't, they weren't going to let that stop them using the technology. But instead, they made decision, principal decisions about how to use it. Another thing that they prioritized was using forms of technology that the most people possible would have access to rather than like the fanciest thing. So even at the time, the world uh, in 1995, the, um, the web was harder to gain access to than email or these things called storage tools called gophers, or there were discussion boards that were existing that without away from the web. Email existed at that time separate from the web. Right, and they were right. really conscious about using these kind of, the web was more of a shiny thing that some people had access to. And they were really conscious about trying to use technology that the most people in the world could access. So not so to create a more inclusive conversation. Um, yeah, I think that's all so interesting. I, I was just really kind of blown away from about that. But it makes total sense what you're, what you're writing about there. Yeah. And then another thing that was really interesting that relates to what we were talking about before, about the power dynamics of the movement is that women of color, transgender people, women with disabilities, they were also real leaders in seizing on the internet as tools to communicate and find one another and create communities of their own. So it wasn't just that people, they were forming their own organizations, they were forming their own virtual communities. And it was, you know, so like the, a reporter from a newspaper might go to the National Organization for Women for a commentary on a feminist issue. But some of the most in- interesting and really um, engaging conversations about feminism were happening really in places people didn't expect. And that was on the web. <laughs> that was, there were all kinds of alternative websites and chat rooms being created by people who were looking to find ways to create community with people who were similar for themselves, to analyze their lives and analyze the world around them, share ideas, get support for issues they were going through. And it was a really vibrant space for people who you might consider kind of more like on the margin, right? And they seized these tools and created networks and really little cultures of their own. Well, the other the other issue that I thought was very interesting that we uh, you you named very specifically was how volunteer activism became professionalized, and how that professionalization of feminist activism was also very much linked to funding sources. Uh, uh, feminist feminist uh, organizations got very sophisticated about who to go to for money, how to get the money. You know, at networking, uh, writing how to write a grant, you know, proposal uh, in a way that would 
interest big funders. And there were some major funders coming in. So in 1990s, it seems from your, your book, uh, feminism was getting very sophisticated and very well funded. Well, yes and no. <laughs> I think that, I mean, okay. definitely sophisticated in terms of figuring out where to get money to do what they needed to do. And I think that actually money and social movements is a topic in terms of, especially historically, is a topic that has not been explored nearly as much as it could be. We have some starting to get some really interesting literature about like the funding of social movements and the and grant making and philanthropy. I think there's just it's such a rich topic. So I don't want to don't want us to think that the 90s is the first time you know money becomes part of the movement. It really this is a this has a long history, but in the 1990s, there really was, I think, a shift where increasing numbers of activists who prior to that might have, you know, held a full-time job and then belonged to an organization doing social change that they, you know, went to in the evening, went to meetings in the evenings or on weekends. Increasingly, people are finding ways to do feminism as their job, right? It's becoming their job, whether that is they're working in a nonprofit organization, they're working for a domestic violence shelter or a rape crisis center, right? Or they're, maybe they're a feminist lawyer, they're a feminist doctor, or like me, you know, a feminist academic, right? Like they're doing, they're doing feminism as part of their full-time job. This is a really critical shift. And this is true across the board. This is true of kind of all kinds of people who are involved in various forms of feminist activism at this time. It's not to say people, some people still didn't volunteer, but increasing numbers of people are doing this work in some ways for pay and getting savvy as you're, as you've so smartly pointed out about how to get the money, how to apply for grants. The reason I say yes and no is that when you look at an analysis of like where foundation grants went in the 90s, feminist causes are a very small fraction of it. You know, they increase the the part of the pot that they get, but still next to some other causes, they would, you know, many people would say they are and still are, they were and still are, you know, not as robustly funded as um, some other kinds of causes. But for that reason, women started to create their own Foundation. So we have a rise of women's funds specifically um, organized to get women of wealth to put their money into various kinds of feminist activism. And the activists themselves learned how to write grant proposals, learned how to meet with um, program officers at foundations, and how to kind of spin their work in a way that would be most likely to get funding. And it really Changed the movement both um, for good and also had its drawbacks. Right. One of the things about the about applying for grants is that grant makers, the big ones, are very their focus is on outcomes, hard deliverables. You know, if we give you this money, what are we going to see? What are you going to deliver that's specific, concrete, practical? And a lot of the feminist work is ideological work, really. <laughs> you know, exactly. I mean, you're, and I don't mean that in a bad sense. I'm just saying no. it's about changing minds, changing culture, t- changing attitudes, getting people to focus on a problem. And there may not be a lot of concrete, you know, deliverables. 
Um, Absolutely. That's such a great way to put it. And I really, you know, that, and that's just, that's really a challenge in, that was really a challenge that they came up against. And the degree, both the way that their work was kind of, kind of had to like find ways to shape it to meet these kind of institutional requirements of like reporting on the results of your grant. Did you meet these deliverables or whatever, right? And also that sometimes the, the goal of the foundation wasn't quite as radical as the goals of the feminist, right? And so how to still find a way to frame your work or do some, like meet the goals of the founders without losing sight of your own goals and your own roots and your own values and priorities. This is something people talk, started to talk a lot about in the 1990s. And they coined the term the nonprofit industrial complex and started Absolutely. To, to, and there is some really, there's a very important feminist conference about the nonprofit industrial complex, kind of the benefit of, you know, acknowledging really that it's a double-edged sword. The money is incredibly helpful. It allows you know, thousands of people to do this work full time, whereas before they would be fitting it in around the edges of their life. They now can devote themselves full time to activism, to getting a paycheck. They have resources to hire others and to do the kinds of work at a much larger scale than they ever could before. Yet at the same time, it, you know, it really does come with, it has all kinds of well, drawbacks, really. Some of it's just the time that it takes to apply for grants and report on grants and do, you know, that's just the new, that in and of itself becomes a full-time job, just raising the fund. You have to hire a fundraiser to be the one who's writing the grant proposal, reporting on it, you know, doing all this kind of work. And, you know, it's incredibly time-consuming. Your goals and priorities don't always mesh with the funders. You are, it's also extremely stressful because money runs out if you're being funded by grants. And living kind of grant to grant is not, it's, it's a challenging, it's a challenge. And that's, and if that's what's paying for your rent, you know, that's a really challenging way to live as well. Right. If you're talk, and we're talking about uh, funding for awareness causes, in other words, you want to make people aware of, the, of domestic violence, you know, and that the awareness campaign is the campaign and it doesn't play as well as saying we're going to start a shelter and we, you know, this year we saved 50 women, you know, from being murdered by their, their partners or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, awareness is kind of a, you know, squishy, you know, how do you measure that you've raised awareness uh, about a a particular issue? And so much of feminist work is about awareness, education, awareness, and making problems come to light and not yet maybe, you know, actually having a shelter. You know, it's easier if you have a shelter to get money because you can, you know, profile the victims, you know, right. Say this is how many people we served or whatever. Right. Right. Exactly. So the, the other thing I was wondering about is this is all this funding and this professionalization seems to go kind of against, against and the thing that a lot of feminists were trying to do was to overturn uh, not just sexism, but racism, you know, uh, class structures. Basically, uh, uh, they want to do a kind of a holistic, let's change our society and our political system. 
but they're getting their money. Some of their money is coming from institutions that are there to prop up that system. Yeah. So (laughs) there's just the tension of we're going to use the system to try to undo the system. Exactly. That's a great way to put it. (laughs) And I I think that's really tough. I mean, I think that that wonder compromises, how much compromise has has to happen in that. Exactly. And that was a tension that what I found really interesting about my research on this topic was that kind of like what I was saying about the internet, that from the get-go, a lot of what we see today was there from the very beginning, (laughs) Um, just in different forms. The degree to which there, I mean, this was understood by feminists from the get-go. Like, they, it's not like they they got all involved in the funders and they are, like, making it their jobs or doing these kinds of things, working for an institution that they knew wasn't as politically progressive as they were. I mean, pe- they were doing this with eyes wide open, understanding the trade-offs they were making and what was going to be gained and lost. And deciding in many cases that the gains were worth the drawbacks and that this was it was a valuable way to kind of create to work on creating social change in all of these different through these different kinds of institutions different funding sources now there were certain lines that people drew like for example one of the interesting issues had to do with getting funding from the government Um, people who worked internationally very few of them would take any money from the government because so many of their international partners just could not stand, um, you know, just had such a strong critique of the U.S. government that it would have made it impossible for them to be part of coalition if they were getting funding from the government. And then especially, especially, yes, especially, excuse me, but especially since the U.S. government has been decades and decades trying to use American institutions, civil society to spread its own message, you know, its political agenda. Yeah. So, I mean, that was kind of a no-go. And then, then then another thing where we saw real split um, was um, particularly among people who were working in various forms of what at the time people called violence against women. So domestic violence, rape, those kinds of issues. Um, Also the degree to which they were going to, government money often came along with that came an assumption or a requirement that you would be your services would be deeply um, involved with the criminal justice system right and the police and the courts and many people many women of color and people working in those communities understood that that was basically a (laughs) no-go you know that these were not seen as resources by people but rather um, other forms, you know, rather institutions that were contributing to oppression and that working, there was no way to have a fruitful partnership with, um, you know, to be working in the court system. I mean, they needed to come up, try to be thinking about other kinds of solutions and strategies. So that was another, so again here, so there were, it's not that people, that activists just went and took any money or did anything just to get some money, right? But it was really carefully considered debated. Um, And then in the end, you know, people are just making what they think are the best decisions. So, but I was very interested in the degree to which, like, there was a really high level of self-consciousness about it all that I think we see continues today. 
um, and is um, it was very fascinating for me to study it and look at those roots. The other thing, I, so I want to talk a little bit about larger issues, like for instance, a question that I have is, you've got you've got a feminism here that in a way is is expanding its tent, but it's also fracturing. And what I mean by that is, can you still have a survivable feminist movement with so many other issues attached to it? And aren't women end up working against each other? And I'm talking about is gender first, is race first, is class first? Okay, that tension between what for some women it's going to be class. Class is going to be more important to them, and then them being women and the genders of the issue attached to that. Some women race is going to be primary primary. Um, for some women, it's going to be gender and class and race are secondary. So you end up with this fracturing and deep division. How do you, how, can feminism survive when it's, it's so many issues are attached to it? Right. So one of the things that, I don't think happened was a fracturing because the idea of fracture suggests there was at one time a united whole that then dissolved into pieces, right? Into different enemy camps or something. That's not what happened. There have always been separate strands of feminism, right? There have always been competing ideas about what feminism is and what it should be. And, um, and there've always been, and people who are involved, part of the movement have always had different priorities. None of this is really new to the 90s. What I think is new is that some of these other perspectives have gotten more play. <laughs> it became more influential. That that it, but prior to this, it really was a kind of um, the people who tended to get all the airtime were people who kind of maybe you would say gender first, right? And the degree to which, and I think so, it's less that there was a fracturing and more there's become more understanding of the multifaceted nature of the movement. And I see that not as a weakness, but as a strength, because there is a tremendous amount of very fruitful and helpful debate and discussion about these issues, about why, about, you know, what priorities should be, about how to think about a movement in a way that centers those most oppressed and what that kind of a vision will bring for all of us. And I, so I see it not as a death knell or even a problem. I see it as more a recognition of what we've known to always be the case and as something that has always, that something that has really resulted in ever increasing kind of awareness and analysis of the multiplicity of identity that, um, is part of this movement and is part of all of our lives. So I'm going to ask now, so how does a more professionalized, well, better funded, more connected uh, 
more diverse feminist activism? What does it mean for us today? And now we're going through this political crisis, health crisis. Um, what is what is the role of feminism this moment? Well, I think we're seeing in what's happening around us today uh, so much of what feminists have been saying for decades is proving to be the case right before our eyes, right? And when we think about things like, I think we're seeing that, you know, often a lot, for example, in the care work crisis. <laughs> I mean, it's always been um, in terms of the fact that schools are not going, many schools are not going back. Who is tends to be responsible for that care work labor in the home? It still tends, even though men are doing more in heterosexual couples, it still tends to primarily that work falls primarily to women for various kinds of structural and cultural reasons. Um, we see and that so a lot of the unpaid care work that women have been responsible for is really becoming ever more essential and also is um, the fact that there's not there's no compensation and no recognition for it is impeding people's lives right and we're also seeing that in terms of the we're also seeing this in terms of like who's performing essential labor and the definitions of essential labor that really, I think we're starting to have a broader understanding of that labor to include many of the jobs that tend to primarily be performed by women. And I think a lot of, there's, there's just so many crises that are brewing and surfacing that have to do with um, inequalities <laughs> that people have been talking about for a long time. And it's, we're seeing the power of feminist analysis to look at that and to start to think about solutions to some of these problems. You know, it, what you're just saying really gives new meaning to the whole idea of uh, with care work and uh, the double duty that many women are having to do between care work at home, you know, at school, schooling their kids at home and having a job, okay, mm -hmm. that they're working at home. It really gives a new meaning to the whole concept of leaning in. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's it's almost comical. It yeah. wasn't so sad and tragic. So, so what do you what would what do you want? What's the takeaway for the reader and for the listener today? What is the takeaway? What is the one thing you want them to know? I think that mass movements don't emerge out of thin air, right? They build on the activism that happened in the past. And we saw that with the Women's March. We saw that with Me Too. We saw that with Black Lives Matter, which builds on decades of unrecognized um, activism in people's communities, right? And also in um, the world at large. And so the, the ideas that get promoted, the understandings of oppression and injustice and the strategies people use, they don't just kind of pop up. They have been brewing for decades. And then at particular moments, they surface in a way that we see them. But we can't understand that surfacing um, 
without looking at the hard work that has that that went into that, and that often is takes place away from TV cameras, away from a reporter, right? It takes place in local communities. It takes place in classrooms, in nonprofit offices, in a courtroom. It takes place on the, it takes place on the internet now. It takes place in all kinds of places that we don't think about as being part of a social movement, but really, that they really are. And so, if we can open our eyes to see the activism that is happening all around us, we're going to have a much fuller understanding. Of the social movements that are happening right now, right here around us, that don't just that encompass the activism that isn't making headlines, but is taking place and fueling those surges, those surging moments where we all can't believe what's happening. That's why history is so important. Right I like there. to you think just, so. Absolutely. <laughs> you just you just gave a great commercial for history and people understanding the, the historical background of all all these movements that are among us right now. That they they didn't just spring out of nothing, but they've been they've got decades and maybe centuries of of work. Well, thank you, Lisa. Thank you for William, your time. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. I really appreciate your deep engagement with the book and the ideas and your own work on feminism and women's lives, which is also going to add to this wonderful understanding of the history of this activism that we're compiling. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. This is your host, Lillian Barger.